All right. Um, our next guest is uh, Sharon Jacobs. Sharon is Associate Professor of Law at the University of Colorado Law School. She's also on the board of the Getches Wilkinson Center for Natural Resources, Energy, and the Environment. And her research, not coincidentally, uh, exists at the intersection of energy and the environment. Um, and we're happy to have her here today. Thanks for being here, Sharon. Thanks so much for having me. So we're going to talk about a work of Professor Jacobs that is still in draft form, and it's one that gets right to the heart of how the way we frame energy problems can obscure or bias our perception of trade-offs at the heart of the energy system, the trade-offs we've been discussing between reliability, affordability, and environmental performance. And the paper is called Environmental Privileging. So... Um, why don't we start by um, having you share and explain what you mean by the term environmental privileging. Who does it? When and where do they do it? Or when and where does it tend to happen? So let me start with talking about what I think of when I say privileging. So what I mean by privileging generally is just the elevation of certain goals uh, or values above others. Um, and here I'm, I'm talking specifically about elevating the idea of environmental goals, environmental policies, environmental ends uh, over other possible policies, values, ends in energy decision making. Um, and, but I do want to take a step back and say that at bottom, this is not really a paper about environmental privileging per se. It's about what I see as this privileging problem more generally in energy decision making, how and why we do this with respect to any values, any goals. Um, so I'm using environmental privileging as a case study, um, but there's lots of privileging, of course, that goes on in energy policy making and energy regulation. So, you know, President Trump, for example, privileges the coal industry and local coal jobs and energy decision making. Uh, recently, Rick Perry has at least purported to privilege uh, lifting developing nations out of poverty uh, as a justification for exporting fossil fuels. Uh, so that's another version of it. And my critique is of all of those privileging decisions, but environmental privileging is my case study. So hopefully that answers your question about what environmental privileging means. Um, now, who does it? Well, I'm focused on two sets of actors in this paper. So on the one hand, I'm focused on uh, commentators. And by commentators, I primarily mean academics, but not exclusively. I'm also talking about uh, activists. I'm talking about advocates, people who say things that will inform the policymaking process in one way or another. Um, and their recommendations for what kind of laws and what kind of re uh, regulations we have uh, are often informed by this privileging. So that's one set. The other set uh, of, of people that I'm talking about are policymakers. Um, and by this, I mean legislators and regulators and the like. Um, and the laws and the regulations that these policymakers actually draft, that they actually pass, that they actually implement, I think are also the result of some version of privileging. And what motivated you to want to attack this issue? I think that there are two very important and related questions that we as energy and environmental law scholars in particular, but that scholars in general also need to think about. Um, and the first is to the extent that trade-offs are inherent in our energy policy choices, how do we justify privileging one value, one goal over another? Uh, so that's the first question. And then second, at a more granular level, once we know what our own justifications are, how do we design laws and regulations that best reflect 
those genuine justifications. So the impetus for this project was actually the 2016 election. Um, and that election brought pluralism home to me in a very visceral way. And maybe we can talk in a minute about what I understand pluralism to mean. Um, but I was forced to confront the reality after that election uh, that some things that matter very much to me matter relatively little to other people. Uh, and vice versa. And in energy law specifically, I became very interested in how those disagreements manifest and then how we respond to them. Um, so we can resolve disputes through the electoral process um, in a way that satisfies some of the most bare-boned criteria of democracy, but that kind of resolution to me is quite unsatisfying, um, and it's the product of, of what some people call minimalist democracy. And, um, and academics in particular, I think, should aim higher. We should aim to examine our own assumptions and to think about the most productive ways to talk about energy priorities at various points in the legal process. So your project was motivated by the same, uh, the same trigger as this project. Uh, I, I think that's right. Uh, um, so it's not, and it's not that, so you're not looking at environmental privileging because you don't care about the environment. You're making a distinction between what you care about and what scholars ought to be. I think could that's be focusing right. on. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you may have addressed this a, a little bit, but um, my, my next question is: Why is environmental privileging a problem? Is it a problem that we do it at all, or that we do it unconsciously or for obscure reasons? Yeah. So privileging generally, I don't think is a problem. I would describe it as a feature of of the system. It's not not a bug. As humans, we have preferences. We we rank values and goals. That's what that's what we do. That's how we organize information. Um, and so, what is problematic is this unacknowledged or hidden privileging. Um, and, and the implicit privileging of various types of goals and issues in, in energy policy making, you know, from environmental protection to job impacts to distributional considerations. Um, to me, you know, I'm the mother of a three-year-old, and that's the, the conversational equivalent of retreating behind this familiar justification for all parents of young children, which is because I said so. Um, and I, I think we can do better. I think that's unsatisfying um, for a number of reasons. I mean, I think first there are, there are moral reasons to take quite seriously the values, hierarchies of other people. Um, there are also uh, political reasons to take this more seriously. So um, if we fail to justify in civic discourse our reasons for privileging environmental concerns, for example, that might lead to political victories that are quite hard fought and also short lived. Uh, and, and because laws that rest on in inadequately justified privileging, I think, are more vulnerable to attack from those who disagree. So that means it's going to be harder to get those laws passed in the first place. It also means that later they're going to be more vulnerable to repeal. Um, and, and then in addition from a democratic perspective, and I can talk about this um, a little bit more, articulating the deeper justifications for elevating one concern uh, over another can have, can have benefits in terms of the deliberative process. And that's true regardless of what conception of democracy and debate uh, you hold. So in, uh, in addition to uh, sort of the 2016 election allowing you to sort of see or forcing us to see that there are a lot of people out there who privilege different things than we do, mm -hmm. you can also see it as kind of a uh, uprising by non-elites against elites. Right. And to the extent that elite decision making processes have this kind of privileging built in, unless you start to justify it the way you just described in a more in a fuller way, you may be exacerbating a, a, a political problem. And, and, and therefore, as you said, the result might not be as durable. 
I think so, and I think we have an obligation to, to try to do it better. Um, and, and one of the other impetuses for this project that I didn't talk about was um, reflection on some of my own work that I've done in the past on trade-offs. Um, and I've written pieces about what I call the energy prosumer. These are individuals who both consume energy and generate it themselves and some of the trade-offs that that creates on the grid. And Shelley was talking about some of these earlier um, in her presentation, this idea about pricing and distribution of pricing and, and how we price um, in particular generation like rooftop solar. Um, and, and so in my own writing on that, I found that I ignored one question, and that was the preliminary question of, of you know, why do we think it's important to think about these trade-offs, and in what way do we select one policy goal over another? And I think there's a lot of literature out there right now about the intersection of energy and environmental law in particular um, that does a really nice job of answering certain questions, and it does a really nice job of answering the question of why we need to think about environmental criteria in some of our nuts and bolts energy regulatory processes, like siting, like planning, like rate making, in order to make progress on those environmental issues. But what it doesn't do is sit down and say, why the environment versus macroeconomic policy? Why the environment versus energy security? Why the environment versus local jobs, to the extent that trade-offs exist? So you alluded earlier to the fact that you got into some philosophical and rhetorical aspects of this narrative framing issue surrounding energy problems or energy policy problems. Can you explain in lay terms the, the philosophical and rhetorical concepts that you use in the article to try and explain these ideas and how you think they help us improve the way we, or could improve the way we frame energy policy problems? Sure. So, you know, this is still a work in progress for me, but one of the um, phrases or terms that I found particularly compelling in this context is the idea of value pluralism, um, which basically just means there are no simple or single solutions to moral problems, to legal problems, to political problems, because people hold different uh, values. And, and, and a premise of this idea is that those values are frequently in tension, um, that many, if not all of them, are legitimate, and also that they are in some sense incommensurate. Role, that we can't actually derive a common metric um, for each of them that would allow us to compare one to another in some kind of rational way. So an example from energy policy would be something like citing a wind turbine, where you have uh, relevant regulators, maybe you've set up a public hearing, you have some people come to speak at the public hearing who care very much about the aesthetics of a coastline and are worried that the wind turbines will interfere with those aesthetics. You have other people that come and speak in a very passionate, heartfelt way about the bird death that will occur as a result of these turbines. You have a whole additional set of people that come and are worried about costs cost to ratepayers that will result from either the capital cost of the turbines or if the energy is slightly more expensive, what that will do to rates, um, deeply held beliefs, and then workers at a local coal plant who are worried that if the coal plant shuts down, their jobs will actually be uh, at risk. We all care about different things that are affected by energy decisions. Um, and, and in the paper, what I want to develop is that for a long time in energy regulation, we've thought about really two things, right? We've thought about low cost, affordability, and we've thought about adequate um, and over time, over the last several decades especially, we're starting to add a third consideration to that group. We think more about environmental considerations now than we ever used to. Um, but I'm, I'm questioning in this piece why those three, right? What else needs to be included in that group? And then once we have a large enough set of factors, how we mediate between them. Okay. 
Um, so do you have, do you develop a prescription for trying to address the environmental privileging problem in the paper? And if so, what is it? So I have one major prescription right now and then some benefits that I think will flow from it. So let me talk about the prescription um, first. I mean, the prescription is what you would expect. Um, I just want each of us that cares very much about environmental issues and energy policymaking, um, academics, policymakers, individuals, to, to look inward um, and to ask ourselves why we're engaged if we are in this unconscious environmental privileging um, and then to justify it. So what I do in the paper is I offer a set, uh, and it's a preliminary set, and I'm hoping that this will spur a broader conversation so that we can enlarge this set of possible justifications for environmental privileging. Um, and they range from everything uh, from what I call fundamentality privileging, um, which is, or the fundamentality justification, which is the idea that there's something about the natural environment or aspects of it that are so foundationally important, um, and these justifications sometimes take on a almost a religious or a faith-based aspect to them, so important that they should be, they should have pride of place in every type of decision-making that we do. Um, that's possible. There's another type of justification that I call a proximity justification, which is that certain decisions, and energy especially, have proximate effects. They have direct effects. And it is those direct effects that we should incorporate into the original decision. Um, and, and I list about four or five of these that you could choose from. And I see probably three primary benefits that will flow from selecting one of these justifications and articulating more clearly for ourselves what our justification is. Um, the first is a, a, a discourse justification. I'm going to call these the three Ds for now, discourse, decision-making, and design. So the discourse justification um, I've already touched on. I think that, that justifications like this will allow us to engage in more productive conversations, both with people that agree with us and with people that disagree with us who don't share uh, our preferences. And there's some democratic theory that suggests that we only truly engage in communicative acts with others when we give reasons for our statements. That is what allows other people to criticize or help justify those statements. Um, and that is what truly meaningful discourse is. Um, so if someone tells you, look, you know, I know that there's a lot at stake in this decision about whether to cite a nuclear plant in Utah, for example, but what I think is important is talking about water and drought because, you know, this is one version of justification, the actual core goals of this project cannot succeed. Um, we cannot achieve them without considering the water impacts at a time of drought. Um, and so that is one possible justification. The project won't be successful without them. And that allows you then to engage with that specific justification as opposed to just we need to think about the environment when we think about citing power plants. Um, I think decision-making will also improve if we incorporate these justifications, um, if we have decisions that are based on reasons. I mean, the legal world cares a great deal about justification already. We require judges to give reasons for their decisions. We require administrators to do that. Um, and academics especially rely on reason-giving because that is our power. It's the power to persuade. Um, and then finally, uh, and this is going to be a significant piece of the project, I think we're going to get more sensible statutory and regulatory design if we think about justification. And that's because I think certain justifications map on really nicely to different types of regulatory design. So let me just give you a couple of examples. If you think we should privilege environmental criteria because they are of fundamental importance, um, that 
tends to suggest a regulatory design in which environmental criteria are considered as part of every decision, not just energy decision making. Um, and so that would suggest something like a NEPA-type statute, which for those of you who don't know that fun acronym, um, the National Environmental Policy Act that requires consideration of environmental impacts for any major federal decision that could affect the quality of the human environment. Um, on the other hand, if you care about environmental impacts because you think it's important to consider the direct environmental effects of specific decisions, then you might want to have a regulatory design that emphasizes case-by-case assessment of what those impacts are, both within the environment and beyond, and the incorporation of expert advice. For example, um, in Washington State, there's a siting council that's made up of representatives from the departments of ecology and fish and wildlife um, and natural resource and other agencies, and they make recommendations on siting decisions according to specific criteria at stake. Let me ask one more question. Yeah. So an, an economist might react to your analysis by saying there is a common metric. Mm-hmm. Right. There is a way to, to sort of balance these things. Um, and it's the market. Right. And and if we can just get prices right, the market will manage these trade offs for us. Um, and it's these human biases really come into play more when the when the political entities get involved and less when the when people are acting as uh, players in the market. What do you say to that? And so first, I would say probably that, you know, the choice to move to markets itself involves value choices that I would call privileging. So the market is really good at valuing certain things, really good, like, like physical assets, for example, not great at valuing others like justice um, or fairness, or sometimes we talk about um, uh, natural resources, for example. Um, so by advocating for markets, we're making an implicit choice that the former category in some sense matters more than the latter. Um, second, uh, I would say that, again, as you point out in your paper, uh, we, we, at least in the energy space, we've never really had pure markets. So we always are going to have some combination of markets and regulation. So even if you think that markets are a way of getting around the privileging problem, we, at least in this country, haven't seen a pure version of that. Um, there's always going to be some overlay of regulation. And when you get the overlay of regulation, um, you get clear privileging um, and choices. Um, and then lastly, I guess more fundamentally, we think about bias and markets avoiding bias. You know, I say preference maybe to buy. We may want to avoid bias but not preference, right, which is, again, a feature of this process. Um, and, and what we should be doing is designing regulatory systems and I think to force these genuine conversations. We shouldn't be trying to avoid them. We should be uh, embracing them and we should think about designing regulatory processes so that people like public utility commissioners, uh, people like the heads of environmental agencies, our regulators that are tasked with making these very complex decisions in energy that touch on any number of given values uh, and goals have incentives to engage in this kind of debate, in this kind of reason giving, um, where uh, where they will produce decisions that better reflect the views of sort of the median voter and the polity, uh, if you will. Um, and if we don't like where they come out, then we continue the conversation. This is an ongoing process. This isn't a question of getting to the right answer tomorrow or 10 days from now or a year from now. This is more of a prescription for how we conduct ourselves in this space. Great. Thank you very much.